Greetings and welcome to Unsupervised Learning. I'm Daniel Meisler, and this is a weekly show that brings you the most interesting content in InfoSec, technology, and humans. The idea is to curate around three to five hours of weekly reading into a 15 to 30 minute summary. The goal is to have you caught up on current events, tell you about the best content from around the web, and hopefully give you something to think about as well. You can get the companion newsletter with all the show notes and links at danielmesor.com newsletter. All right, welcome to episode 74. I want to start off with the recommendation to increase the speed of this podcast to 1.5x. I've been listening to podcasts, audiobooks, all sorts of stuff at roughly um, 1.5 to like 2.5x. And I'm getting through a lot more content. I listened to a couple seconds of myself at 1.5x. And honestly, it's just better. So go ahead and do that real quick. And uh, we'll continue. So starting with InfoSec news, biggest news this week by far was the latest leak by the shadow brokers. So it's widely considered to be true that this is a Russian group and that the timing of the recent link was coincided with and basically a retaliation for the U.S. showing force in Syria and and or Afghanistan. The leak contained significant vulns around SMB and uh, Microsoft said that they had already patched most of them, but they also released uh, additional patches like a day or two afterwards. And uh, yeah, it's a massive leak. A lot of people are calling this the biggest thing since the Snowden release. A couple of uh, big things about it include the fact that um, the SWIFT network was evidently hacked by the NSA. And uh, that, of course, is the banking network that handles transfers of funds between different banks internationally. And evidently, NSA has been in that for quite some time, and it was monitoring transactions that were over a certain uh, dollar amount. So this is another big blow to the NSA, and uh, a lot of people are watching it pretty closely, but very major news from last week. Forrester says, Zero Fox, Proofpoint, Risk IQ, and Digital Shadows are leading in the digital risk monitoring space. This is a space that I really enjoy watching. I think it's pretty cool to be able to sort of rate and assess the risk of a company from the outside. Ideally, that would include the inside as well. And a lot of these metrics that some of these companies, not necessarily these, but some of the companies in the space use are pretty bad metrics. They're kind of just kind of guesses really. And uh, haven't been overly impressed with them, but they they just continue to get better, right? It's very early on. And uh, it's pretty cool that uh, Forrester called out some companies saying that uh, they're doing a good job. So if you're looking for uh, something there, I would probably start with those companies. A researcher named Michael Crunch has shown that you can accurately fingerprint what someone is watching on Netflix with over 99% accuracy by looking just at the TCPIP traffic. And that's even though the content is going over HTTPS. Basically, there's a variable bitrate component that can actually, you can take a fingerprint of, gives you a signature, and you could just take signatures of known movies or known content, and then compare the signatures and you have a match. So that was pretty interesting research. There's been a credit card breach at GameStop. So if you shop there between like September and like February, I think, you should probably check out your credit card transactions to make sure that they're okay. Of course, you should probably be doing that anyway, given that so many uh, banks are getting hacked all the time or Companies are getting hacked all the time. Nation states appear to be using more and more of the same tools that defensive teams are using, uh, sort of white hacker tools. This includes Metasploit, Cobalt, Beef, Mimikatz, 
all, all sorts of stuff, really. And according to uh, a, a few people who have commented on it, it looks to be a mixture of reasons, right? So it includes just sort of supplementing tool sets they might, that they might not have. But a big one is just blending in with background noise, right? If you come up with a custom toolkit and it's associated with your group and you've got these people out there from these security companies blogging about, oh, look, I found this toolkit here. It's associated with these IP addresses. Like your TDPs become obvious, then uh, it's harder to blend in. So I think that's uh, probably a pretty good explanation in addition to the uh, just filling out the tool set. There was also additional commentary that a lot of these groups, they take the base image or the, the base tool and you know embrace and extend as Microsoft used to call it and uh, basically build custom versions, but they're still based on that, uh, the original tool. But when you're a defensive group and you're, you're looking at Metasploit traffic coming in or whatever kind of traffic coming in, it um, it's hard to say. Is this is this a commission pen test? Is this our own red team? Is this some cybercrime group or is it some you know state actor group? And uh, so I think it's pretty useful to be able to hide in the background like that. There's a nasty RCE bug in Magneto that you need to patch if you're running it. It's basically a bug that allows you to download and place files into the web root, which of course can get you like a web shell basically. Technology news. Amazon is making its smart speaker technology available to third parties. This is basically another attack on Google and I guess preempt preemptively attacking Apple, but even though they haven't entered the space yet. Facebook is talking about its 100 gigabit optical connectors that it's using in its data centers. Burger King did an ad where the person in the video says, okay, Google, what's in the Whopper burger? And it caused a bunch of Google home devices to activate. It actually searched for the phrase on Wikipedia and then started listing ingredients. More services are considering thumbs up or thumbs down rating systems after Netflix switched to that from a five-star system. I personally think this is a way better way to go. I think the best possible combo is actually to do thumbs up and thumbs down, which is super simple, but then combine that with a, a link for leave a comment. So you basically have thumbs up, thumbs down, and then a text field. I think text field is super important, but you want the simplicity of up or down. So I think that's probably going to be, I wouldn't be surprised if a bunch of people sort of settled on that. Google is building a job platform for recruiters called Hire. Not completely clear, like who's building what components and who the audience is and what features it's going to have above, you know, other offerings that are out there, but should be interesting. I, I think I saw an article, someone saying you could potentially have some leaked data from it, but um, it didn't seem overly solid yet, but uh, it'll be curious because I mean, they, they put so much effort into their hiring practice, building a platform based on it and sharing data with others will definitely be interesting to watch. VMware is buying a company called Wavefront which is a cloud monitoring solution. So I heard a rumor a while back that they're kind of getting out of the, the uh, virtualization space, which is really weird. I mean, VMware not in virtualization, um, but they're still evidently playing in the cloud space, you know, buying a company in cloud monitoring. So that's interesting. So I have to see what happens there. Minecraft is launching its own in-app currency and payment system. The thing could end up competing with Bitcoin. Minecraft is no joke. And Google has released a tool called AutoDraw, which uses machine learning to figure out what you probably meant to draw. So you can like draw the dumbest looking thing and it's like, oh, this is supposed to be a dolphin or a bicycle or whatever. And it just corrects it for you. 
Uh, it's actually really cool if you check out the demos of it. Human News. MIT and UC Berkeley have created a water harvester that can pull liters of water out of dry air and it's powered only by the sun. So the prototype, I think they put it on the roof of MIT and it pulled 2.8 liters of water out of humidity, out of, out of air that had a humidity of only 20 to 30%. And it took about 12 hours to get that 2.8 liters. But obviously the idea is to go to really arid locations where they have plenty of sun, but no water and use these things, uh, assuming they can get mass produced. So really, really cool piece of engineering there. Got a link here that says the more you use Facebook, the worse you feel. I think that's uh, something I've talked about for a while. I think a lot of people instinctively know that, but there are just more and more studies showing a direct tie from uh, spending a lot of time there and just being depressed. I think fundamentally it comes down to this. It's the opposite of meditation, right? It's like uh, meditation, you're focused on your center, your core, your breathing, you know, whatever, an on word or whatever it is. And it's like the definition of self. It's the closest to the inside that you can be and that's where you get happiness, right? Facebook is the opposite. It's it's focusing on not only not an onward and not a meditative focus, but it's someone else's. You're just obsessing over not just your own shallow thoughts, but someone else's. And it's just, uh, I don't know, seems like almost a polar opposite of where to derive happiness from. Aspen Holdings, one of the world's largest pharmaceutical companies, appears to have arranged a shortage of cancer drugs and then celebrated the resulting price hikes. Like there's emails going back and forth like, oh, high five on this massive price hike of this life-saving drug. And then they were trying to like blackmail someone into <clears throat> uh, accepting a price no less than 4,000% higher than it was supposed to be. My comment was reserve seating in hell for sure. I don't even believe in hell, but they're definitely going. U.S. border searches of phones and laptops have almost doubled. So if you're traveling around the United States or out of the United States and then back into it, even if you're a citizen, you really need to focus on this. You need to have a policy with your company, especially if you have customer data on your system. What are you supposed to do? Are you supposed to surrender the password? Are you supposed to surrender your password not on the first request, but only on the third request, only after they, you know, bring in the hoses, you know, to start the beatings? Like, when do you give it up? And what do you do if you have to give it up? Do you have to declare to customers that, you know, this machine has been imaged and your, your vulnerability data could be out there? I mean, it's crazy. The government can't defend its own data. Why are they going to have images of your data and your customer's data? I think it's insane. I think the best way is to not have it on it when you're crossing the U.S. border until things uh, settle down. Looks like AT&T paid for the creation of America's nuclear weapons. And if you drill into it, the reason is because Back in the Cold War time, they uh, the people doing the program wanted to hide the conversation from Congress because nuclear weapons were a sensitive topic, obviously because of Japan. And uh, they didn't want to answer questions about how many they were making or whatever. So they just put it inside an R&D budget under AT&T. And that's how, you know, them combined with Sandia Labs was how these weapons were built for, I guess, decades. Fascinating. Step one of raising a creative child is backing off. Makes sense. 
ideas. My thoughts on the OWASP top 10 2017 draft. So this was uh, a big deal on Twitter last week. Um, basically, the, the thing came out, it got released. There was a bunch of traffic on the mailing list. And a whole bunch of people in InfoSec who, you know, big names, people well-known, just came out and just kind of trashed it, completely trashed it. And uh, some of them I, I thought were being too harsh. Others had, you know, really good reasons. Um, others, you know, had like a conflict of interest or whatever. They didn't like this or they didn't get their favorite vendor toy in and someone else did get theirs. But um, I, having been part of OWASP for so long <clears throat> and having been on so many of those calls and, and been leader for a few different projects and knowing how hard it is to make any progress at all, I just had some empathy for the group putting out a list. And at first glance, a couple of things I didn't like. I didn't like the naming of one of the things, which was, it, it was actually A7. Um, and A7 is the one that people attacked the most. It was like insufficient attack protection, I think it was. And if you look at the Vuln, if you drill into it, it's basically you need to be able to detect, respond, and patch, which I thought detect and respond and fix is great. And I, I would have loved for the Vuln to, to be named or, or the issue, the entry, the item to have been named um, insufficient detection and response. It's a little bit long, which is why, you know, it probably wouldn't have survived, but I think that would have been a cool name and I think it would have been descriptive and it is something that deserves to be on such a list because so many people, they just have no idea if their app's getting beaten up. They have no, you know, they don't have like an OWASP app sensor type functionality built in where they could detect specific events. And, you know, it's basically inv invisibility um, and you can't respond to what you can't see and can't detect. So I think it would be a great category or whatever, vulnerability, risk, whatever. And uh, so th that was cool. So at first I, I thought it was pretty cool. And then people were like, oh, did you read down lower? And I'm like, no, I don't think so. And you dive deeper into it and it's like, that's why you should use, you know, RASP solution and WAF solution and blah, blah, blah. So it basically did kind of push vendor stuff in, in a pretty strong way. And there's a whole massive history around, you know, some of the founders and they went on to do aspect and then contrast. So the whole thing was basically people thinking that the, the entire category was built for products and they're kind of pushing products and they use the OWASP project to, to further their business. And this has been a, a big issue with OWASP for since I've been involved in it for like, you know, six or seven years. And I'm sure it's been even longer than that. That's why there's kind of a policy of vendor agnosticism. You're not supposed to be pushing your products, but, Anyway, that, that was a big, it was probably the biggest problem that people had. Um, other than that though, I think insufficient detection and response is a great category. And I think what they should do is consider maybe changing the name. Not that the name is, you know, biased towards a vendor, but maybe change the name to make it more obvious. Attack defense, that can mean lots of things. But if you say insufficient detection and response, I think it's pretty clear what that means. And then just remove specific solutions. Let, let's have a separate project about solutions, right? We, we need to break these things up and, and not try to conflate them, especially when you have vendor drama in there. So those are my thoughts on it. I, I wrote a post about it. That's what I've been talking about is that post basically. And there's a link to it, obviously. Uh, so you can check it out.
So next one, how to connect to a local port on a remote SSH server. This isn't really an idea, but the ideas section is where I put all my own content if I have any during the week. So it's here, even though it's a technical post, and so is the next one. But uh, how to connect to a local port on a remote SSH server. I was actually running, uh, it was basically a mobile assessment framework. It was, it was MobSF, actually. And uh, my local Linux environment was annoying me. So I wanted to see if I could do it on a remote box. Ended up having to do it in Kali. But anyway, um, I did get this to work because it wasn't working and it was annoying me. So um, after a bunch of research and a bunch of tinkering, I have the actual command that allows you to connect to a distant remote box and then actually serve or view content using your browser off of that local box. So, you know, local host, whatever port, you put that into your own browser locally and you actually see what's running locally on the remote box on the remote SSH server. So this has the command for how to set that up in case you ever need it. Next one, AWS EC2 default NAT and security groups. So this one is talking about a pretty cool thing that EC2 does in AWS, which is different than like DigitalOcean or Linode or any other host that I've used, which is they give you an IP address, but it's like a private IP address. And when you spin up a service that's listening on that IP, it is not, you, you can't connect from the internet to it until you configure your security groups. Uh, that's the name of it, a security group. And uh, what a security group is functionally at this point is basically firewall slash NAT rules. So you pass ports in, you know, you, you go and you pick a, a type of service and you can, you can use one of the ones that they already have. They got templates for, you know, HTTP and SSH and all that. And you, you say, you know, who's allowed to connect to you or whatever. It's just like building a firewall rule. And um, that then you can be talked to on that port, right? You have full access, you know, it passes it in and you could touch the box from the internet. But what's cool is you're not talking to that IP address. It's not just a pure firewall rule you're actually talking to an external IP address. So it is quite a bit more like a NAT where you're talking to a NAT address and that NAT slash firewall system, if the firewall allows, it will pass the traffic back. So um, the post was basically about how this is different in AWS than it is on other VPSs and um, and basically how it works, how, oh, and also the name, how, how security groups is just a really crazy name. And I understand from a couple of people on Twitter that there's a history, right? It used to be more like a security group um, because of how different boxes were clustered together. But at this point, it's just like a firewall rule that you can share. Because when you stand up another box, you can reuse firewall rules or security groups that were that were set up somewhere else. So there's kind of a history to it, but I think AWS is struggling with bad naming in general because they, um, I mean, security group, think when you hear that as a security person, you think, you know, roles, permissions, groups inside of groups, you know, are back, that kind of stuff. And um, yeah when in fact, all this is, is just firewall rules. So I hope, hope at some point they will do like a, a, a renaming purge, right? Where they go in and they just readjust all these names to be what they actually are supposed to be. Uh, there was a cool thing um, a while back about AWS services in general, not about security, but just all the different names for all the disparate, you know, AWS system uh, systems and services and and products and it was like I, I had it in the newsletter a couple of weeks ago and it was like 
you know, here's what it is called. Here's what it should have been called. Here's what it actually does. Um, and that was sort of pointing out the same thing, which is a naming problem with a lot of their stuff. But that's what that was about. Next one, uh, a lot of people don't realize that deep learning systems are complete black boxes, not just to users, but to their creators as well. And we're giving more and more decision-making power to them as humans. So basically when a deep learning system, which is a type of machine learning, when a deep learning system, which is fed by data, and basically the data improves the model. So the system keeps getting smarter, basically. And a good example would be like image recognition, you know, facial recognition or whatever. Those systems are complete black boxes to the creators of the algorithm and to the creators of the model, to the people who use the system and build the system. What happens is you have these and I'm not an expert on this stuff, so I could mangle some part of this, but basically it's a series of links, right? These, there's these connections. Um, and there's associations, there's different types of machine learning, but there's neural nets as well. And neural nets are made to model um, biological brains. So um, basically there's a series of connections. And as you move from one connection to the next, and you have more and more of them, you know, you could potentially, you, you get better and better results. But, but the key thing is as you move from one to the next, and then as you come out of the system with the results, you don't get to see as a engineer or a creator of, of the system or whatever, you don't get to peer inside and see why they made what decision. What you get at, at the end is cat or not cat. And when, you know, you had something that confused a human or it confused every other system, but maybe you built just the best new, you know, deep learning based image recognition system. And somehow it figured out that this picture is a cat. How did it do it? That's crazy. There's nothing to go look at. You can't break it open and be like, oh, this is how it figured it out. Now we can just add that to something else. You don't get to do that because it's a black box. And what's crazy about this, which um, they talked about in, this, in the Homo Deus book, is um, humans don't understand themselves. You know, humans are black boxes too. The difference is we don't think we are. You know, most people who, you know, don't, uh, you know, get off on learning this kind of stuff and reading and stuff, it, they assume that they're in control of their own, you know, desires and their own destiny and their own emotions. And they don't realize how, uh, how opaque they actually are to themselves. Um, but, but what's happening is we're giving more and more decision-making to these computer systems um, because they're making better decisions for us, about us than we are. Right. And, and that's only going to improve the more computers understand about us and about our behavior, they're going to know when we're going to want to do X versus Y. They're going to be able to preemptively predict that we want, there we're about to want to do Z. Right. And then we'll be like, how, how did you know that? And the computer will say, well, cause you always do that or whatever, or maybe someone will describe how the computer knows that or whatever, which they can't do because of this. But, the idea is that it'll be able to just know things that we don't. And at some point it's going to start, well, I mean, it's already starting now, but it'll be like, who should I marry? Who should I date? Um, should I allow my kid to do this? Um, where do we, when do I retire? Like really important life decisions. And, you know, it'll be the, the magic eight ball and it'll say, you know, you should move to Wyoming. Um, you should get the camper instead of the summer home or whatever. It's going to tell you things that previously would have been like, sit down with the family, make this deep decision. But once you start getting good results from something, from anything, you keep going back to it. And the crazy part is it's going to give us such good results that we're going to keep asking more and more things 
and it's going to get better and better. You, you feed these things with more and more data about humans. Humans aren't all that different. We're basically the same across, you know, genders, races. Like it's a very finite space to sort of solve um, in a lot of ways. So at some point, people aren't going to be making their own decisions about kind of anything. Like everything's going to be curated. You know, you're going to say, turn up your spontaneity um, dial and say, surprise me today for my lunch. Surprise me for what movie we're going to watch on Netflix. Surprise me for whatever. But even then, you're not going to have to turn the dial because it's going to know whether you want to be surprised or, or whether you want to have an old staple. And at some point, let's say there was an outsider who lived in the woods and, you know, re-injects into society and people are just walking around getting these prompts on their AR glasses, telling them exactly what to do and what to say to the, to the girl to impress her and also where, where to go eat and when to go to sleep and how to work out. And it's like, hey, we, that's cool that you did that. Why did you do that? Oh, that's what my system told me to do. What do you mean your system? Yeah, it's a computer. She just tells me exactly what I should do and how long I should do it. And then when I shouldn't do it anymore. Also interrupting me. But when I shouldn't do it anymore, she told me to stop. And it's like, are you kidding me? Everyone's walking around being told exactly what to do, exactly when to do it by a system that they can't even explain. You, you can't even go into these systems and figure out why it's telling everyone to do what they're doing. So, I mean, I think day-to-day -day life and important, like meaningful decisions is troubling enough, but what if, well, not what if, but what about when there are con deeper concerns, right? Like deeper considerations, like military systems. Do you shoot or do you not shoot? What size weapon do you use against this enemy? Um, police, right? What, 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 if, um, what if weapons are engaged or not engaged and the police officer is making decision and, you, you know, the safety is either on or it's not. So when, when the police officer, you know, pulls the trigger, if the computer did not agree with that decision to, to shoot, then it would not engage the, the trigger or whatever. But in this case, it did. It did decide to shoot. Or maybe it was a completely autonomous police officer and it decided to shoot. And you go to it and say, why'd you shoot this person, but you didn't shoot that person? I can't explain it to you. That's what, that's what we thought was best to do. And that's a scary answer The the more important, the deeper, the, the meaning for humans, the less usable and the less acceptable that opaque, I don't know how it works answer is going to be. So that's, that's what that's about. on forcibly removing people from your private business. This is about, man, it feels like ancient history at this point. I mean, after the Microsoft stuff and everything else that went on, this seems like four weeks ago, but um, the guy was kicked off the United plane. And uh, I did, I, I said something on Twitter and I got like massively flamed, like hundreds of people reached out and they're just like, it was, it was a bunch of people I didn't know. It wasn't like the security industry. Everyone who reached out from security was like, yeah, I see your point. Definitely true. And a whole bunch even more reached out privately and said, oh, absolutely. It's exactly what I believe. What I basically said was we, we basically have a police state and cops are unbelievably empowered to just kick people's butts for no reason. Like, they, you look at them wrong, whatever, they could just hit you. Like they can tear you up. Um, I mean, at this point when I get pulled over, I'm 10 and two, I'm saying, yes, sir. No, sir. Like you just don't know what's going to happen. You don't know 
what call they just came from or how stressed out they are about whatever. So to me, it's, they're highly over-militarized. The attitudes are very intense. And uh, I think it's a bad situation for police overall across the entire United States. Now you add a plane, an airplane, a commercial aircraft with the legacy of 9-11, which basically empowered cops to be like 20 times more aggressive, right? And what people don't understand about flight attendants, they're they're an official, okay? They are an official person once you're on a commercial aircraft because they, they are operating inside this 9-11 bubble. If, if they say jump, you know, they say get out of your chair, they say get in that chair, they say get on the ground, like you have to do these things. Um, the moment they step outside of that airplane, they're, they're not anybody, right? They're just some person. They're just a service industry person. Um, they're just like any other job. But on a plane, it's, uh, it's a matter of safety. That's the way it's pitched. So United totally made a mistake here. I mean, it was obviously their problem. They, they basically, they overbook as a policy. And then when that policy worked exactly as it was supposed to, they're like, hey, sorry, we had a problem. We overbooked. It's not a problem. That's what you did. That's what the system does. You overbook as a matter of policy. So, of course, you were overbooked. But um, they basically asked people to get off the plane. And uh, they said no. And they kept raising the money. And people still didn't say no. They're like, okay, nobody agreed, so nobody volunteered, so we're going to just randomly pick. So they pick some guy, and it's uh, some doctor dude, and he's like, I'm not getting up. And I wasn't there, so I, I'm just assuming the conversation basically went like this. The stewardess is like, hey, you were picked. You got to get up. And he's like, nope, I'm not getting up. I have to do something when I get there. He was saying he had to... He was a doctor and he had to see patients. Turns out, I don't think he was a doctor because he had lost his license. Doesn't really matter um, at that point. But she's like, get up. And, and he's like, no, I'm not getting up. I want to go to my location. This is the part that basically the stupidity transfers from her, or not from her, not from her, but from United to him, right? United's already at fault because the whole situation is their fault. This is the only reason they're having this dumb conversation, right? But transferred it to over to him because she is an authority in this position. Um, th that's just the that's just reality, right? She she's has nine eleven authority basically at this moment. Once she says get up, because. If you don't turn off your phone, you don't do anything. She'll just call the marshal and they'll just shoot you or whatever. I had a friend who was, uh, didn't turn off his phone fast enough, basically ignored uh, the uh, attendant too many times and, and got ejected by a marshal. So they don't play. Anyway, so he ignores her, says no to her. So she does exactly what he should have known. Everyone on the plane knew she was going to do. She goes and gets the police. So three giant looking dudes show up. They're all my size, at least like three of them show up or four or however many. And they're like, you got to get up. And he's like, no, I am not moving. And he grabs the furniture. He basically grabs and clings on to the thing. And they're like, okay, well, this is how this is going to go down. Basically drag him. He, he, uh, at some point, his like head, head hit something and he got hurt. Like it was just so messed up, right? United's fault and then his fault for being dumb when cops are involved on an airplane. So, so I basically said, if a cop shows up on an airplane or something like that and you don't move, you should expect bad things to happen. And that's exactly, I mean, I hundred percent believe that. And, uh, everyone was like, yeah, absolutely. People were retweeting it and sort of liking it. And then 
uh, it got picked up in a different group. Uh, I think a younger crowd and they're just like, Oh my God, this guy was a total victim. And you know, he paid for his ticket and this is like oppression or whatever. So what the post was about is about private property. And, and again, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm only assuming that this is accurate and I'm pretty sure it is. And I read that it is, but, but again, I'm not a lawyer, so I can't say for sure. But the way this goes is that United owns that plane. You, that is a private aircraft. It is a, uh, it's private property. It's United property. So this would be the same as you going into a restaurant, private restaurant, and you pay to eat there and you sit down and someone walks up and he's like, yeah, I, I work here. I'm the owner. And I heard you having a conversation that um, I'm not comfortable with. Let's say you were talking about, I don't know, soccer, right? You're talking about soccer and you like this team and that team or whatever. And the owner's like, yeah, get out. You have to go. I'm, I'm not serving you food. You're going to leave. What happens if you say no? What happens if you say I paid to eat this food and you're going to bring it to me? What, what would happen? Well, I'll tell you what would happen. He could say, I'm calling the police. When the police get there, the owner wins. The owner gets to say, this is private property. I'm kicking this guy out and he won't leave. He refused to leave. So the cops would grab this person and drop him on their neck. That's what would happen. Um, I don't know about Europe or wherever else, but th that's pretty much what happens in the United States. Even if you've been invited, even if it was an open door, even if you paid money to eat there, the owner can kick you out. Now, guess what? That's going to get on Facebook and no one's going to go eat at that restaurant anymore because that guy's an asshole. So there's a, there are repercussions to, to treating customers this way. And that is what United deserves in this case, right? They deserve to be, well, first of all, they lost a billion dollars in, in value as a result of this. So they, they, they were punished, you know, rightly so for being dumb. And, uh, but back to my point, they should not, people should not be confused about their ability to do that. They can be that stupid if they want to, because it's their airplane. It's private property. Um, they just shouldn't have been that dumb because, well, now, now, now they're seeing what happens when they do. But if you take that idea into a restaurant or any a private home anywhere, the owner always wins. And if it's an airplane with 9-11 hanging around, you, uh, you got to do the right thing because the cops don't play. I love the contrast with European cops. I've seen like multiple videos and I don't know if it's the same anymore, but like I saw some drunk guy outside of a bar pull a knife on these European cops. I, I don't know where they were. Probably not Germany because they're crazy, but it was, I think it was like England. And the guy's like, oh, come on. Oh, stop that. Put that away. And they're like, come on, Mickey, come on. They're like talking him down. The guy's like waving a knife at him. He wasn't like lunging and trying to hurt him, but he's waving his knife and he was uh, just blabbering on. And they just kept their distance away, talked him down and like, I don't know, took him to jail for a night and like didn't even prosecute or anything. Here, that guy would have been dead for swinging a punch almost, let alone if he drew a knife, he would have been extra dead and all his friends and pets. Anyway, that was a digression, but that's why when a stewardess or whoever tells you on an airplane to get up, you better move. All right. Discovery. Got here a link to simply the most beautiful fonts you've ever seen. These are the fonts I run on my site. He's actually added a few more. His name is Matthew Butterick. He's a lawyer. 
And uh, he also, he's a typographer. He creates fonts, or he used to anyway. And he's created these. He's got like four of them here. I'm about to buy the other two, but I already bought Equity and Concourse. And those are the two that I run on my site. But um, this website, just the website where he talks about fonts, it produces like happiness and glee in me to just look at the typography on this page. I mean, I'm just imagining now and it's making me happy. It's so, so good. If you're into fonts at all, like you just want to check these out. Just browse on the website. It'll put you in a better mood, even if you don't get the fonts. Um, all right, I got a link here. It's actually a GIF. It's a um, it's how the archer fish hunts, and I'm not even going to tell you about it. It's an archer fish, so you could think about that. But when you see this thing, it will trip you out. Just just check out the link. Uh, I got the link for the OWASP Top 10 Web 2017. That's a link to the project. The other one is a link to my blog post about it. Got a link here for um, Anton Shavakin. Probably mispronouncing that. feel bad about that. Known the guy for like 12 years. Describes numerous ways that data lake projects fail. Uh, basically, the overall concept here is you don't just take everything, throw it into a data lake, and magic appears. Like, there's a lot of nuance there. There's a little bit of a Twitter discussion between me and him and, uh, and another buddy of mine, and a bunch of folks um, on Twitter were talking about it, that basically sometimes less data is better if it's pruned and you know the question that you're asking. But one thing you can't do is just take everything in whatever shape and form, throw it in there and expect good things to happen. John Coltrane's illustration of the mathematics of music. It's a really cool little graphic. You should check this thing out. Humble people make the best leaders. The dangerous academic is an extinct species. That is a cool concept. Should have put that in ideas. Federated learning, a project by Google to efficiently use a combination of edge and cloud technologies for machine learning updates. So this is a big problem with machine learning. Uh, well, practical use of machine learning uh, when you're mobile, right? Because most use cases are mobile. It's, it's a person or a car or whatever. And the question is, where is all this processing done? Where's the data? Where are the models? How's the, what's the interaction look like? Is everything going to the cloud? That's not practical until we have 7G or whatever. And uh, you know how much can be done on the edge? And you have different ways of sort of thinking about this. Like the Google way is to send everything to the cloud and just do everything there. Apple's all about the privacy and keeping everything at the edge and not sending much back. So whether it's privacy or whatever, whatever the reason, there are trade-offs between edge versus cloud. And of course, you still need to share the data and share the insights. So this is a project to basically um, manage the efficiency of what stays local and what goes to the cloud and only sending the diffs of what you need to send, and that sort of thing. Got a project here called Generate Emails. It's not actually a project name, but that's the concept. You basically take a list of full names and it converts them into various email conventions. And then I assume it fires them off. And then you you get to find out which ones are valid emails. This is for like pen testing, social engineering, phishing. And a list of AWS security scripts by Ken Johnson of Invisium. I know this guy is super cool. Uh, I always see him down at Apps at Cali. And uh, last year he did, or earlier this year, he did a AWS security talk, which I just rechecked out the slides. It was fantastic. And uh, yeah, he's basically AWS security guru, and he's got a whole bunch of these uh, scripts up on his GitHub. But you should check out his talks as well. Um, yeah, really cool guy and really good at AWS security.
notes. I finished, well, started a new book uh, called The Gene, and I finished it already. It's a uh, remarkable book on the history of genetics, and uh, I'm going to have a summary about it, of it uh, up on the site soon. And I've already added just a couple days ago, my summaries for Sapiens and Homo Deus. So those are up there. And uh, there's an IoT security meetup in San Francisco on Thursday night. I think it's Thursday. It's 420. So hopefully people will show up and not be somewhere doing something bad or good. It's, it's good now, so no problem. I and some other IOActive folks will be pronouncing words there. So definitely come check it out, RSVP, and uh, stop by if you're going to be in the area. Recommendation. Oh, yeah, there's a pretty cool online AWS class put out by Amazon. It's four hours long. It's free, and I got the link to sign up to it. I'm going to be doing it soon. I think I probably know a lot of the stuff already just based on the research I've been doing, but Four-hour free class by Amazon. Sure, I'll take that. And uh, the aphorism for the week. There's nothing so useless as doing efficiently that which should not be done at all. Peter Drucker. There's nothing so useless as doing efficiently that which should not be done at all. Peter Drucker. All right. Thanks for listening. I will see you next week. All right. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget that you can get the show notes for this episode, including the links to everything mentioned in the companion newsletter at danielmiesler.com slash newsletter. And if you like the show, please share it with a friend or on social media. I'll see you next time.